Well, between the two of us, between me and my brother, my brother tends to be more um, kind of adventurous, outgoing. Uh, growing up, he always had a lot of friends around him. Almost uh, every weekend, he had friends over. And I was kind of quiet, uh, wasn't the most popular, just kind of flew under the radar. And I'm thinking back to, it was early 2000s, and it was the time of the boy bands. And the thing at the time that was popular was for guys to get hair, uh, highlights in their hair. And so I thought it was the coolest thing. My brother thought it was the coolest thing. Uh, but I, w- I didn't have the guts to do it. Um, so I, I had no interest to do it. I just didn't, I didn't want the attention. I didn't want to kind of look different, uh, even though I w- liked the way it looked. Um, so my brother wanted to do it. So my mom takes, takes us to the hairstylist to, to get our hair, uh, hair done. And so he went first, and they put highlights in his hair. I really liked the way it looked, uh, but I was still, you know, nervous, didn't want to, to do it. Uh, and then my mom's like, are you sure, sure you don't want highlights? And then the, the stylist said, well, we got some extra dye left over. You know, it wouldn't be much extra. I could just put it in. And I'm like, all right, I'll do it. Uh, so I, I, I'm thinking, I'm looking at my brother, and his hair looked really good. And so I'm thinking maybe just a little bit less than my brother. So I said, you know, just maybe a little bit all over the place. I thought she was going to just kind of put a little bit in since she knew that I was kind of hesitant about it. But that wasn't the case. My hair was completely blonde. Now, this picture doesn't really do it justice. This picture was taken, I think, several weeks after it was done. I think I might even have had a haircut in between. Like, it was completely yellow, you know, the brightest blonde you can imagine. Uh, It wasn't really highlights. It was just kind of just dyed blonde. I don't know what she was thinking, but I I remember going to school, and I was just horrified, just not because it looked so bad. It was just so different. And I looked in the mirror. I'm like, who who am I? And, And teachers looked at me, and they're like, who are you? You know, and they were shocked, not just because I look so different, because they, they wouldn't expect me to be the one that would make such a drastic change. You know, we all have kind of different personalities, and some of us have a desire to be different, some of us have a desire to kind of fit in. And I think the same thing is true when it comes to our Christian faith. On the one hand, you have people that are kind of like public Christians, so to speak. Uh, these are the people who wear Christian t-shirts, they're quick to talk about their spiritual practice, how they go to church, how they're faithful givers, how they get up at 5 a.m. to pray every morning, and they're very outspoken about their faith, sometimes even to the point of being kind of weird or obnoxious. Now, sometimes it's just, you know, someone's outgoing and just kind of open about their faith and about their practices, but other times it's kind of this hypocrisy where it's like, look at me, look at how spiritual, look at how wonderful I am. And, uh, of course, Jesus had a lot to say about hypocrisy, about kind of the show of, of putting on a show of spirituality. Uh, just in the next chapter, in Matthew 6, Jesus says this, uh, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And so on the one hand, you have public Christians, those who want to be different. 
uh, whether that's in a good way or a bad way. Uh, then you have other people who are kind of like silent or private Christians. Um, I don't know if you've ever had this happen to you before. Maybe you meet someone and maybe you've known this person for years, maybe a coworker, maybe a friend, and, and then something comes up where you find out that they're going to a Christian church. And so you ask them, oh, are you a Christian? And they say, yes, I'm a Christian. And, and the whole time you've known them for years, you had no idea that they were a Christian as well. Uh, or you have private Christians who maybe don't go to church, who you know, just kind of have a private faith. They don't talk about it. It's just between them and, and God. And so you have these two kind of extremes. And we know kind of how Jesus talks about hypocrisy and how he speaks harshly against this. But in this passage that we're looking at today, he kind of addresses the other extreme. The extreme of being a silent or a private Christian. And so as we look at this passage, uh, there's two questions I'd like to consider today for just a couple minutes. Uh, number one, how should Christians look in comparison to the world? And number two, how public should we be about our faith and spiritual practices? So the first question, how should Christians look in comparison to the world? And the answer is quite simple. Christians should look radically different from the world. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under feet. Um, you think about salt in the ancient world, it was used for the primary purposes that we use salt for, as a preservative uh, and also for flavoring. Now imagine that you go home after church and you're making dinner and you cook something that's a little bit bland like green beans or something like that. And you cook them up, and then afterwards you go and you put a little salt on them. And then you try one, but you don't taste any salt. So you put a little bit more salt on. You try it again, you don't taste any salt. So you put a little more, and a little more, and a little more, and you don't taste any salt. After a while, you probably think, well, maybe I have COVID. Maybe I've lost my sense of taste. But imagine you go and you ask somebody, a friend or your spouse, and say, hey, try this. Does it taste salty? And they try it, and they say, no, I don't taste any salt. Well, at that point, you realize there's something wrong with this salt, that it's not tasting salty. And of course, if that's the case, if you have salt that you're putting on to the food and it's not doing anything, it's worthless. It's to be thrown out. And so Jesus says, people who call themselves Christians and yet are not different are useless for the kingdom of God. But think about it a little bit deeper. How many of you have ever had that situation happen to you where you've gotten bad salt? Doesn't happen, right? I mean, if it's salt, it's salty. If you call something salt but it's not salty, it's not really salt. And so it's kind of a misnomer to have a, someone who calls themselves a Christian but isn't different than the world. And I think that the big, biggest threat to Christianity today in the United States is that Christianity as an institution that will lose our saltiness, so to speak, that will lose uh, the fact that we're different. That is, that people that call themselves Christians will not live as, as Christ taught or reflect the character of Christ. Uh, and this is happening throughout our country. In, the, in their book, Caught in the Pulpit, Leaving Belief Behind, authors Daniel C. Dennett and Linda Lascola talk about their studies of pastors, pastors who no longer believe in God. Pastors who no longer believe in God. 
There's also several Christian denominations who don't believe much of anything that Jesus or the Bible teaches, don't resemble Christ at all. The San Jose Mercury News once uh, did this uh, segment called News of the Weird. And they talked about this man by the name of James Kelly from Washington, D.C., and he was a part of a small group at his local church. It was a, he was an enthusiastic Episcopalian. And him and others are part of a church but don't believe in God. He said this, We all love the incense, the stained glass windows, the organ music, the vestments, and all of that. It's drama. It's aesthetics. It's the ritual. That's neat, that's neat stuff. I don't want to give that all up just because I don't believe in God. And so I think we're at a place where we're kind of in a danger of people who are Christians or call themselves Christians don't look like Christ, even some who don't even believe in Christ or believe in the gospel. And I think that as, as a church in the United States, we've kind of accommodated to the world, and we think that that's going to be attractive to the world. But the truth is, they don't respect that. The world doesn't respect that. Uh, Christian scholar Larry Towden launched a nationwide campaign where he was um, studying college students who were athe atheists and who were part of athe atheistic campus groups. And after receiving a flood of inquiries and kind of talking to them, he found that this was the case. He found that many atheists, in their encounters with their Christian neighbors, were surprised at the lack of depth that Christians had. Uh, Larry writes, some of these young atheists had gone to church hoping to find answers to tough questions about faith. Others hoped to find answers to questions of personal significance, purpose, and ethics. Serious-minded, they often concluded that church services were largely shallow, harmless, and ultimately irrelevant. As Ben, an engineering major at the University of Texas, so bluntly put it, I really started to get bored with church. In contrast, these young atheists expressed their respect for those ministers who took the Bible seriously. Uh, Larry writes, without fail, our former uh, church-attending students expressed positive feelings for those Christians who unashamedly embraced biblical teaching. Michael, a political science major at Dartmouth, told us, I really can't consider a Christian a good moral person if he isn't trying to convert me. Christianity is something that if you really believed it, it would change your life and would want to change the life of others. I haven't seen too much of that. Christians are clearly called to be different. Why are we called to be different? We're not called to be different just for different sake so that we can stand out from everybody else and be obnoxious. Of course not. We're called to be different in a very specific direction. We're called to be different because of what Jesus talks about in Matthew 5 that we looked at last week in the Sermon on the Mount. We're called to be different because we're citizens of a different kingdom. We're called to embody the values of Jesus. That we're the poor in spirit. We're the merciful. We're those who are meek. Those who know we don't have it all together. And so by nature of being citizens of a different kingdom, we realize that we're going to be different. We're going to look different from that. Our world is mixed up when it comes to what leads to significance in life, what leads to happiness and joy. And as believers, we kind of live in a counter-cultural kingdom. Our world has its own notions about uh, what will make us happy, what will satisfy us, but we have the words of Christ. And the wisdom of Christ is much different than the wisdom of the world, so by nature, we're going to look different than the world. And this can be appealing to the world, but it also can be repelling at the same time. Um, everybody, when we think about salt, just about everybody likes salt to a certain extent. I mean, 
nearly all, any food that you have, unless it's fruits and vegetables, even those we put salt on a lot of times. Almost every food we have has some kind of salt in it. You know, when you think about that, you know, it, it's good. It flavors our food. It's just a little something that, that adds to our life. And I think when the world thinks about the church and kind of the, the church being the salt of, of the earth, a little bit of it is okay. You know, at, when we do things that are kind of loving humanitarian things like, you know, delivering Christmas breakfast, you know, the world looks on that like, oh, that's, that's great. It's nice to help those who are disadvantaged. But if there's too much, salt can get kind of nauseating. And my grandfather, when he was um, near the end of his life, he was getting, uh, I think it's, he was losing his taste. And uh, he just would, you know, we'd go out for dinner and he would take the salt shaker. He would just lather whatever it was that he was eating. Everything was a salt sandwich. And I remember him asking me, um, you know, he'd have some extra french fries. And he's like, oh, you want these french fries? And I'd look at him and it would just be like complete salt. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm good, thanks. And, you know, that much salt is, is, to me, is nauseating. It changes the flavor too much. You're just tasting the salt. And I think in the same, the same way for the world, a little bit salt, it's tolerable. But too much salt is nauseating. And so, yeah, it's great for Christians to, you know, do nice things for other people. But if Christ is going to impact how I live my life, how I handle my money, how I handle my sexuality, how I, how I conduct myself in my business, that's a little bit too much. And so Christianity, our faith, can be appealing in one sense, but repelling in the next. Being different makes us repelling and also attractive to the world. In his book, Vanishing Grace, Philip Yancey writes about a Muslim man who told Yancey this, I've read the entire Quran and can find in it no guidance on how Muslims should live as a minority in society. He said, I've read the entire New Testament many times and can find in it no guidance on how Christians should live as a majority. Yancey comments, Christians best thrive as a minority, a counterculture. Historically, when Christians reach a majority, they have yielded to the temptations of power in ways that are clearly anti-gospel. Robert Bela, a sociologist who, who taught at the University of California at Berkeley, was very influenced, uh, very interested in the influence of religion on community. Uh, and he wrote this in Psychology Today. He said, we should not underestimate the significance of the small group of people who have a new vision of a just and gentle world. The quality of a culture may be changed when 2% of its people have a new vision. So clearly, Jesus and the New Testament teach us that we're called to be different. We're called to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth. And we're called to add to the world, to be a counterculture, to show the world what Christ is like. So that's the first question that, that we, we look at in regard to, our question, to this passage. The second is, how public should we be about our faith? You know, and I think about the way that the Scripture talks about this issue, and I think it's kind of nuanced, the way that Scripture talks about it. You know, we're not called to be hypocrites and be out for the show, but also we're not called to be silent private Christians as well. So I think the scriptures teach a few different principles that we can kind of glean from in this regard. And the first is this, don't flaunt it, but also don't hide it. Don't flaunt it, but don't hide it. On the one hand, Jesus certainly doesn't want us to be like the Pharisees who flaunt our righteousness before others or in it for the show. 
But Jesus also says that we're the light of the world. We're the salt of the earth. And in the Old Testament, Jesus, or God um, planned for Israel to be his light to the nations. That is, that God was going to bless Abraham and his descendants. And through Abraham and his descendants, all of the nations of the world would be blessed. So that people would see Israel and that kind of countercultural uh, kingdom that lived differently than the world. And then that would be kind of an attraction that they would come and want to know the God of Israel. Now, in the New Testament, we are that light of the world. We, as the church, are the light of the world. Jesus says here uh, that we don't put, put out a lamp and then put a bowl over it. It's you know, foolish to do something like that, especially in the ancient world where oil was expensive. You might have a bowl that had oil in it and, and a wick coming, uh, coming out in the middle. And it would be foolish to light that lamp and waste that oil by putting a bowl over it. If you're lighting a lamp, it's so that others could see it. And so Jesus says, don't hide your light. Don't put, it, put a bowl over your light. It, it, it kind of defeats the purpose of, of what the church is. The church is the light of the world. And so what that means is that we're not called to be obnoxious, but we are called to share our faith with those around us. We're not called to perform, but we're called to model righteousness to those around us. And the thing is, each and every one of us, if we call ourselves Christians, we're being watched, whether we know it or not. We're being watched. People are, are looking, how do we respond to suffering? How do we respond to hardship? How do we treat those around us? Our, our lives are always on display for those around us, whether we like it or not. And so as believers, we're to be the light of the world. And we're to communicate something to the world about Christ and the way we live our lives. The second thing I think we learn in, uh, in the scriptures in this passage is that motivation matters. And this was the Pharisees' fundamental problem. It wasn't even as much what they did, but why they did it. They did it so that they would be glorified. They would give money to the temple, and they'd you know, take their change and, and clank it so that everyone could see how much they were giving. They would tell everyone how much they prayed. When they were fasting, they would put on you know, these ratty clothes and kind of disfigure their face so everyone could see, oh, this, this, this person is spiritual, he's fasting. And so the problem was the motivation. It wasn't necessarily the, the actions. It was, it was more the motivation of why they were doing it. And they were doing it so that people around them would see their good works. And, and Jesus here declares a different motivation for letting our light shine. And he says that it's so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The motivation of the hypocrites is, let's do good works so that I might be glorified. And the motivation of the true disciple is, let's do good works so that God would be glorified. So that people would see how great our God is. Pastor Tim Keller, commenting on this passage, puts it this way. The job of salt is to make something taste good. I don't know about you, but I can't stand corn on the cob without salt on it. When I've eaten a piece of corn on the cob that I really like, I put it down, and what do I say? That was great salt. No, I say that was great corn on the cob. Why? Because the job of the salt is not to make you think how great the salt is, but how great the thing is with which it's involved. What if you are salt in your small group Bible study? If you're salt, people won't go away saying, that person really knows the Bible, has all the answers. Showed me up. No, 
What happens is when you go away from a small group in which you have been the salt, people don't say how great you are. They say, what a great small group. What fascinating truth. <clears throat> this is pretty simple. Small, salt makes you feel better about life. Christians make you feel better. But religious people always make you feel condemned. They make you feel worse. So Christians are to do good works for the sake of glorifying God so that God, so the people around us would see how great our God is, that it's not about us and our righteousness and our holiness, it's about how great he is and how he's changed our lives. But there's something that's true about the human heart. In Jeremiah 17, 9, the scriptures say that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And you think about that and that being the case, even when we're doing good work, sometimes it's hard to sort out what our motives really are. I mean, we're, we're doing something that's good, and, and think about the question, am I doing this so that, to impress someone else, or am I doing this for the purpose of honoring God? You know, sometimes it's hard to kind of sort those things out. You know, and Calvin, John Calvin used to talk about how, um, you know, even when we have good motives, you know, even when we want to do good things, even those things are sometimes tinged with bad motives, that, that most of us wants to honor Christ, but maybe there's a part of us that still wants to glorify ourselves. And so we're desperate for God's grace. We're def desperate for his grace in our lives. And, and Calvin also talked about how God, as a gracious heavenly father, sees our good works. And even if we're kind of tinged with those bad motives, he, he shows us grace and counts those things as righteousness if our heart is right before him. You know, and you know, think about the state of our heart. I think, I think it's imperative that we're constantly coming before God and, and asking God the question, as the psalmist says, search me, O God, and know my, my heart. Try, try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And so we need to be coming to God saying, God, am I doing this for the right reason? God, your name and your renown, that's the desire of my heart. I don't want to be in it for the show. I don't want to be in it for the performance. I don't want to be in it so that people will see how righteous I am. I want people to see you. And so we need to check our hearts daily in that regard because our hearts can deceive us so easily. Uh, the final thing I think we see in this passage is that y'all are the light of the world. Y'all are the light of the world. You know, we think about, you know, this passage and, you know, the word you in English is kind of unique. In almost every other language, you have a plural and a singular form of you. But in the English language, there's you can mean one person or you can mean a group of people. And so, of course, our southern friends say y'all, uh, which kind of makes sense since most other languages have that. But we think about this passage, and when Jesus says, you are the light of the world or you are the salt of, uh, salt of the earth, He's not saying you individual, he's saying y'all, all of us, the church. You as an individual are not the light of the world. I am not the light of the world. There is only one singular light of the world, and that was Jesus Christ. He calls his body, the church, the light of the world. Us who are believers, the light of the world. We, plural, are the light of the world. And I think about this image of a city set on a hill that can't be hidden. And uh, the other day I was driving, or picking up my wife from work, and it was like 4.45, 5 o'clock, and it was already dark out, and she works downtown Buffalo, and I'm driving into the city, 
Um, and I'm just look, kind of looking at the skyline, and you know, you see these high-rise buildings with all these lights on, and, and it's kind of cool that you have, you know, just different patterns, a dappling of lights where, you know, you have floors where maybe all the lights are on and floors where all the lights are off, and then you have, you know, an office here that's on, an office there that's on, you know, and the whole thing is remarkable. It's kind of pretty as you drive into the city seeing all those lights on. You can't mistake, you can't miss it. But thinking about that, imagine that the power is out in the city of Buffalo. And the only light that's on is one 60-watt light bulb in the middle of one of those high-rise buildings. Generators, or generators powering that one light bulb. Now, if that was the case, if you drove by the city, you might not see any lights at all. I mean, especially if it's kind of obstructed. I mean, that light is doing something. I mean, if you're standing right underneath that light, you can see something. But you could drive by the city and not even know that there's any lights on. And I think the same thing is true for us as believers and as the body of Christ. We are the light of the world, which means that we're not in this by ourselves. And this is encouraging and challenging at the same time. It's challenging because if we're going to make a difference in the world, we need each other. We need to all be on board. It can't be just one person shining the light of Christ. It needs to be all of us working together. We all have a part to play. But it's also encouraging to know that we're not in this by ourselves. We're not the light of the world. We shine our light, we shine the light of Christ, but we're not the light of the world. We follow Christ who is the one singular light of the world. And as we follow him, his body, his church shines the light into the world. So we don't have to try to be the light of the world. We don't have to illuminate the light to everyone. We just have to do our part being faithful in our lives, in our families, in our relationships, in the way we live our lives. And as we do that, even if it seems small to us, even if it doesn't seem like it makes a difference, we shine the light of Christ to a watching world. And so Jesus calls us to be the light of the world. He calls us as the church to shine his light. So kind of to sum it up, as believers... In Jesus, we have an incredible responsibility to, to live different than the world, to embody the values of the kingdom of God, as Jesus elaborated in Matthew 5. And as believers in Jesus, we live a public faith, a life that's always on display. So seeking the glory of God and working together as the body of Christ, we're to shine the light of Christ in a dark world, a world that is confused, broken, and in darkness. But the question is, will the church answer the call? Will the church be the light of the world? Will the church be the salt of the earth? The question is, will we be the light of the, the world? Will we be the salt of the earth? John Stott once said this. He said, I know something about the growing dishonesty, corruption, immorality, violence, pornography, the diminishing respect for human life, the increase in abortion. Whose fault is it? Let me put it th like this. If the house is dark at night, there's no sense in blaming the house. That's what happens when the sun goes down. The question to ask is, where is the light? If meat goes bad, there's no sense in blaming the meat. That's what happens when the bacteria are allowed to breed unchecked. The question to ask is, where is the salt? If society becomes corrupt like a dark night or stinking fish, there's no sense in blaming society. That's what happens when fallen human society is left to itself and human evil is unrestrained and unchecked. The question to ask is, where is the church? 
May Christ find us living lives of obedience, living out his truth, shining his light everywhere we go. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the fact that you are the light of the world, that while we were living in darkness, you came to the earth and shined your light so that we might see the the way to live, the way to honor you, the way to find joy, peace, and significance in you. Lord, we thank you that, we give you, that, you, that you've given us your word that shows us how to live. Lord, as a people of faith, help us to live out our calling, a calling to live as citizens of your kingdom, not as citizens of the world. Help us to be the merciful, the poor in spirit. Help us to be meek. Help us to be forgiving. Help us to love those around us with your love. Lord, help us not to be like the hypocrites who put their spirituality on display, but also help us not to be silent. Seeking your glory and your fame, may we shine your light to a dark and dying world, Lord. Lord, give us your grace to do this. Lord, check our hearts. May our motivation in all things, be to honor you and bring you glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.